Hey everybody, this is Hunter Williams. It is going to be episode 90 of the NeuroEdge podcast. We have made it 90 episodes so far. Episode 100 is going to be coming up. Maybe I'm going to be planning something special for that. We'll see. Who knows? Let's find out. The name of today's episode is Stem Cells, Blockchain, Dexterity, Caffeine, Seasonal Eating. So I'm just going to be doing some quick hits on those few topics about how they relate to our physical, mental, emotional, spiritual health and all that. And then also how we can use them to apply going into the future to our lives, to make our lives better, make us a better, higher performing version of ourselves. So they may sound a little bit scattered, but again, I'm going to tie them in together and see how we can do it. So let's get on into it. If you've never heard of some of these topics, hopefully I can eliminate them into you, and I will just explain more as we get into them. So, oh, before I start, don't forget, if you enjoy listening to this and you'd like to interact with other people that are also interested in the same topics, don't forget to click the description, head on over to the Facebook group where we have an inside group of people that talk about all these topics and more. So I'd love to hear your feedback and then also see what you can help contribute. And then also we are going to be doing Q&A podcast. So drop your questions in there and I will be more than happy to answer them. So as always, I will bring that up. Now let's get into it. The first thing I want to talk about today is stem cells. So let me do this. Turn this off. Just give me one second. One day I'm going to be really fast at this right now. I'm still getting used to it. Hopefully you like it so far. All right. So what are stem cells? So stem cell therapy is something that is on the forefront, cutting edge of medical science right now. And I really think it will become much more commonplace in the future. I have heard great results about it just on different podcasts that I listen to. If you listen to Ben Greenfield, Joe Rogan, a lot of those people that are on the cutting edge of health and fitness will talk about it. So I wanted to do a brief overview of what it is because I really wasn't sure what it necessarily was myself. So I kind of want to dive into it, learn a little bit more, and hopefully help you learn a little bit more along the way. So just brought up some broad overview of how stem cell therapy works and what it actually does for your health and maybe can be something that you look into. But stem cells are fundamentally the building blocks of life and have the potential to differentiate into many different types of cells within the body. They're actively involved in repairing, regenerating, and rebuilding damage or absent tissue in the body that has been affected by disease, infection, or injury. So they're kind of like the building blocks of cellular regeneration that we have in our body. And how do they heal? So what do they do for us? Well, receptors on stem cells allow them to migrate to areas that need healing and affect change in that area. So you have these cells, they have receptors, and it allows them to go into areas that we may have damaged cells or tissue. In many people's cases, that could be damaged ligaments, like in your shoulder or in your knees, anything like that. Any of those areas obviously could be other areas as well. Um, but basically, these stem cells, they have receptors on them, and they allow them to go to areas where we may have pain, inflammation, anything like that. And what they can do is potentially become new cells in the area and create new tissue to help them improve functionality. They secrete chemicals which activate and attract your body's native stem cells to initial tissue regeneration. So 
when you get injected with stem cells, especially if it's somewhere around where you have pain, like your knee, shoulder, hips, anything like that, they are going to secrete chemicals and this activates and attracts our own body's native stem cells to uh, initial tissue regeneration. There are numerous scientific evidence that show amazing re reparative potential of these cells. And what types are used? Well, according to this website, which is the Stem Cell Rejuvenation Center, they only use the best source of stem cells containing the highest therapeutic quality bioactive biomolecules of Wharton's jelly derived stem cells in its extracellular matrix along with amniotic membranes available. Um, source of stem cells, all stem cells that they attain are from ethically obtained healthy live cesarean births. That's where most are going to come from. The mothers are donating willfully and they must go through an extensive medical history questionnaire as well as several blood tests to make sure they are healthy and free of all communicable diseases. Once the umbilical cord and placental tissues are removed, the tissues are tested again, as well as the mother and infant that is born. Um, so different types of ones, and this is also what I wanted to get to. So where are the sources of stem cells? So you have umbilical cord stem cells. So these are retrieved from umbilical cords of healthy, live cesarean delivered births and donated by mothers. By far, they are the most effective type of stem cells and are obtained by ethic, ethical means and available in the world today, the young age of the stem cells makes them far more biologically active and gives them a greater ability to divide and grow tissue than older stem cells. And just as a side note, I can't remember where I heard this, but there, I am not sure, actually, you know what, forget that. Um, younger stem cells are about 10 times more potent than that of older stem cells. Umbilical stem cells contain several different types of stem cells, including mainly mesochimal, I don't know how you say that, but uh, stem cells and hematopoietic stem cells. So these allow for treatments of many different types of diseases and conditions. Placental tissue stem cells. So these are similar to umbilical cord derived stem cells and are obtained in the same manner, but are extracted from placental tissue rather than the umbilical cord. Uh, there is amniotic fluid stem cells. So these are from amniotic fluid, which in a newborn baby um, is around the sac when they're in the pregnancy, in the womb in the pregnancy. So there are some stem cells floating around within the fluid, which allow for proper development of a growing fetus, but they are few in number. There are also many different types of bioactive molecules, which aid in tissue growth. It's the least expensive type of stem cell treatment available because it attains the least amount of actual cells, but it also is the least effective. So amniotic fluid stem cell treatment is best used in patients with very mild degenerative conditions or as a supplemental treatment to umbilical cord derived stem cell treatment. So again, pretty interesting. And then also PRP, and just as a side note about PRP, that stands for platelet-rich plasma. I actually went to a conference with, the guy's name is blank on me now, it's Alan something from Stanford. He invented this procedure, really, really smart guy. Uh, platelet-rich plasma is derived from the peripheral blood of the patient being treated. So PRP contains the smallest amount of stem cells and the healing capabilities, mostly due to the bioactive molecules present in the injection. And PRP treatments will typically range from $500 to $2,000 per joint. Um, again, so this is something that is very, very efficient in terms of helping joint regeneration and healing. And I know a lot of people out there have knee problems, shoulder problems, hip problems, especially if you're a former athlete. Um, you can check out this website. I will include it in the description. It's the stemcellcenter.com. But basically it just gives you an overview of everything. So that's stem cells kind of in a nutshell. Basically they go in, they have receptors that will go into areas with damaged, damaged tissue 
go in and attract your own body's stem cell production as well to help heal and speed up the healing process. But never done it myself. Would love to try it at some point, especially with the damage I have taken on my body from playing sports pretty intensively for many amount of years. So pretty cool. And you should definitely check it out. Okay, moving along. So one thing I love to talk about and love to research, and I'm by no means an expert on, is the blockchain. So I truly believe blockchain is one of the revolutionary technologies of the future. If I think, and this is just from my own research and study, I think blockchain is kind of right now where we were with the internet in the early to mid nineties. It's gonna be something that probably 20, 25 years from now, it's gonna be omnipresent everywhere and around us in every facet and form. Right now, it's just kind of hard to grasp. Just as in back in the 90s, people would have never thought that they would be buying things off the internet and then they would be delivered two hours to their house like people do off Amazon now. I kind of think that's where blockchain is at right now. And there's a big misconception, and I'm speaking to the most simple terms possible, so I wanna make sure that everybody gets this. Um, a lot of people correlate or kind of uh, commingle blockchain with Bitcoin, and that's like saying, um, what would be the best analogy? All squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. So Bitcoin is a form of blockchain technology, but there are thousands of different use cases for blockchain. So what I want to do today is just have a brief walkthrough. And I found this really cool infographic, and I think at least my brain works really well with infographics. So I kind of wanted to walk through this and just show you how it works. And maybe this will turn you into actually researching blockchain on your own and getting into it. If you are listening to this, obviously check this out. If you want to see the infographic, I'm going to walk through it so you can listen to it and kind of see how it works. So what is blockchain? Well, blockchain is a decentralized ledger of all transactions across a peer-to-peer -peer network. Using this technology, participants can confirm transactions without the need for a central certifying authority. Potential applications include fund transfers, selling trades, voting, and many other uses. Again, there are thousands of use cases for blockchain. It's really cool to see how this is going to play out in the future. But again, peer-to-peer, -peer, no central authority. See how threatening that is to central banks, central governments, why there is a lot of arguing back and forth about blockchain because power structures don't necessarily like it because it kind of gives power back to the people and decentralizes these network nodes and how they work, whether that's in the financial system, voting system, supply chain, logistics system, you name it. So how does it work? Well, first we have someone requesting a transaction. So you're just on your computer, request a transaction, and this could be to send money, it could be to receive money, it could be something in the form of a contract. So you could be asking someone to fulfill their side of a contractual agreement, it could be a bunch of different things. For the purpose of this, I think the easiest case for our brains to conceptualize is probably money, so I'll talk about that. So how does it work? What starts out, someone requests a transaction. So I am requesting, that someone send me money. The requested transaction is broadcast to a P2P network consisting of computers known as nodes. So this request is sent out to the network of all these computers. The network of nodes validates the transaction and the user's status using known algorithms. So the network of all these nodes, when I send a request to them, it's going to validate that I'm a real person. And what happens then is a verified transaction can involve cryptocurrency contract records of information. Once this is verified, the transaction is combined with other transactions to create a new block of data for the ledger. So I send a request, 
It gets validated on the network, uploaded to all the different computers. If it's a transaction, it could be someone. So I request money, that person sends money to me. Once this gets recorded, it gets added to a block, which then gets uploaded to the blockchain. So we have this agreement where I send, I request money, someone sends me that money. And then that transaction gets added to the chain. And when it gets added to the chain, that is basically saying that it's going out to all those computers on the network so that it can never be erased. If you burn down one computer, it's going to be on the others forever. If you try to take down every single computer, it's still going to be out there because it's uploaded to all these different computers. So this new block is then added to the blockchain in a way that is permanent and unalterable. And then the transaction is complete. So I know that may seem hard to kind of grasp, but think about it in just layman's terms. You're conducting a transaction with someone that gets uploaded to the peer-to-peer -peer network across a distributed ledger of servers, then it is permanent, it can never be destroyed. Once you squash it, it can pop up somewhere else. So you can never erase it, it is always verified, and you didn't need a central authority. The code is written in blockchain transactions where you don't need a central authority to verify a transaction. For instance, now if you want to send money to someone through a wire transfer, you have to send it to a bank, that bank sends it to the other person's bank, assuming they have a different bank, and that person will have to verify. So you have the central intermediary third party that's doing all this. The blockchain removes all of that so that it is strictly peer-to-peer. -peer. You're just interacting with the other person, and the network is the independent, unbiased distributor, and it is decentralized, so it's across many different nodes in the system. So some of the benefits are increased transparency, accurate tracking, a permanent ledger, and cost reduction, that's huge. Some unknowns are it's complex. Uh, again, there are regular regulatory implications, there are implementation impl implications, there are implementation challenges, and there are a bunch of competing platforms. So once you, it's harder until you have network effects of one platform that all people can come onto. Um, and then to underscore cryptocurrency is the type of blockchain technology. So cryptocurrency is a medium of exchange created and stored electronically in the blockchain using encryption techniques to control the creation of monetary units and to verify the transfer of funds. And an example of this would be Bitcoin. Um, some of the drawbacks of cryptocurrency is that it has no intrinsic value, has no physical form and exists only on the network unlike something like gold. And its supply is determined by, a, and its supply is not determined by a central bank and the network is completely decentralized. Um, what are some other use cases? Automotive, so consumers could use the blockchain to manage fractional ownership in autonomous cars. That's probably gonna happen at some point in the future. Uh, financial services, so we could have faster, cheaper settlements and could uh, shave billions of dollars from transaction costs. And if you look now, PayPal is actually issuing the ability for users I know to use Bitcoin on their thing. So you're seeing this start to emerge. Voting, obviously that's big going on right now. You could use a blockchain node for constituents to cast votes via smartphone, tablet, or computer, resulting in immediately verifiable results. Who knows how long that will take off because I'm sure there are a lot of people that would like to tamper with that and cause fraud. And another one is healthcare. So patients encrypted health information could be shared with multiple providers without the risk of privacy breaches, obviously HIPAA and all that stuff is really big in healthcare. So that's just a brief overview about it. I wanted to throw that out there and introduce it to you to maybe get you excited about it and kind of do dive into it deeper. And if you'd like to talk about that more, again, I could talk about this for a long time. So Next thing, dexterity. I wanted to talk about this. So I think it's really important, especially in today's day and age where we do a lot of knowledge work per se, meaning that we're working with computers and we're doing things on email. 
and all that stuff where we're caught up just using our technology to do stuff. The importance of working with your hands, and I found this pretty cool article that talked about some of the benefits of actually working with our hands, how beneficial that is. I know growing up, my family, I grew up in a very outdoor family. My dad was a landscaper, so I was used to doing that growing up. And I think it's just important that we use our hands to do stuff. For thousands of years, we did that, so we're wired to achieve satisfaction from doing that kind of stimuli. So I just want to walk through some of the benefits of how working with your hands, whether you do it for your job or if you just do it something in your leisure time. So touching, feeling, molding, knitting, gardening, painting, boom, all these are manual tasks are really good for your brain. Not only are they fun, but they actually produce endorphins, reducing your stress and anxiety levels. Um, so working with your hands is a way of improving mental health. So things like modeling, clay, knitting, shaping, sculpting, sewing, gardening, any of these things, working with your hands, cutting wood, that's one of my favorites, cutting wood, because you'd be pretty, pretty aggressive with it. Um, it's a great way to re relieve stress, improve neuroplasticity. I think that's one thing that's huge for our mental health is neuroplasticity. And work on your skills, concentration, and calmness. It also kind of helps bring you into the real world. Um, the hand-brain connection is a crucial alliance for human beings and creates a positive feedback loop that can help your growth. It's something we've seen for decades, both in anthropology and psychology. Um, it helps with creativity. So um, again, we have a lot of knowledge work and a lot of that can be very cognitively draining and killing of our creativity. So do, getting back to involving with our hands, again, we're getting these chemical reactions and processes taking place in our brain where we're getting into our creative side. Um, so and a lot of times, too, this article mentions uh, we glorify intellectual labor over manual labor. That's definitely true. Um, when think how important the people that build things and do construction in our society are for us. Um, again, working with your hands and mental health. So sitting in front of your computer all day doesn't count as working with your hands. Unclogging a drain doesn't count either. We're talking about something much deeper than that, something that requires you to use your neural conditions and boost your neuroplasticity. So the way to do that is through creation and transformation. So you should gauge in some kind of process that has a satisfying end result, ideally something that you're creating. Um, also can help fight depression. So uh, doing manual tasks releases serotonin and other endorphins and reduces levels of cortisol, which is that stress hormone, hormone that puts us in a sympathetic nervous system state that is going to make us be in that flight or fight mode. Um, and it also can help push you and relax you at the same time. It can help get you into the state of flow, the all coveted state of flow, which really helps us flow. And I don't know if you've ever been like that. If you're an athlete, you've probably experienced that. It's when you're just in total, totally engrossed in what you're doing and you're in the zone, so to speak. Time slows down and you're just around it. So just as a little tidbit out there, do something, work with your hands. I know that's one thing I want to try to do. And especially as we're coming to fall, something that's really cool to do is firewood. So that being said, moving right along. So caffeine, what am I going to talk about with caffeine today? Well, I'm going to talk about the dark side of caffeine. And I wanted to talk about how caffeine, although through a bunch of different studies, is glorified all the time, how it actually has a drawbacks. And I will be straight up with you. I quit caffeine, I think it was in April of this year. And I wanted to see if I could just do it for a week. And then that turned into 30 days. And then just eventually led to me stopping caffeine. And I was someone that have probably since the age of 15 or 16, use caffeine at least 80 milligrams a day on a pretty regular basis. And I thought at first it would be tougher than it was, but 
I weaned myself off of it. And since then, I haven't really engaged with it. Maybe a cup of coffee here or there. Nothing too strong. But I really think this is something that a lot of people are dependent on. One, because they're sleep deprived. And a lot of people are just making it day to day with the use of caffeine. So I wanted to kind of bring this out into the ether and tell you about some of the harmful effects of caffeine. So number one, and again, this is coming from Dr. Group, who has an awesome website, Global Healing Center. Go check it out. Um, but caffeine encourages dependency. So caffeine suppresses a chemical called adenosine, which is secreted by the brain to relax the body. Suppression of this compound by caffeine affects the body by making it feel a tense surge of energy. While the surge of energy is truly stimulating, the threshold of stimulation continues to rise, making the brain require Increasing levels of caffeine to simulate the same effect increase dependency on users. Again, kind of like dopamine. Remember how dopamine worked when I talked about that in the last episode. Number two, caffeine promotes dehydration. So another negative effect of caffeine is dehydration. It acts as a diuretic, which may be a benefit to individuals dealing with bloating. However, for others, it can uh, be among the biggest contributors to dehydration. Again, most people are chronically dehydrated anyway. They don't need caffeine to help, but again, it's going to cause more dehydration. Um, especially if you're someone that sweats a lot. And so uh, it makes our cells have difficulty absorbing nutrients and also eliminate waste from the body. Uh, caffeine is also known to possibly exhaust the adrenal glands, which is not something that you really want to mess with today, especially because, again, so, much, so many people are in a sympathetic nervous system response. So large amounts of caffeine can lead to adrenal exhaustion precipitated by the rush that it creates in the body. Adrenal exhaustion is particularly pronounced in children, we're now consuming more caffeine than ever thanks to soda and all these different things that are put in their diet, soda, sugar, caffeine, you name it. Um, common symptoms of adrenal burnout include irritability, anxiety, trouble sleeping, hunger fluctuations, mood swings, and leth lethargy. Uh, caffeine also slows digestion, so perhaps the most negative impact of caffeine is uh, the effect it has on the digestive system. I always thought it was the opposite, but it's a pretty good point. Um, it blocks the absorption of magnesium, a key mineral that is essential to the colon's regulation of normal healthy bowel movements, again, which I talked about in another episode recently about how important it is to supplement with magnesium because we're so deficient. So coffee itself compounds the concern by acting as a laxative, causing the bowels move prior to the absorption of water and mineral nutrients. So that's why you usually will want to experience bowel movement right after drinking caffeine. And then this, again, reinforces dehydration and malnourishment and also increases stomach acid and higher acid levels can lead to permanent damage to the intestinal lining. So not good. If you're someone, I would say just as a rule of thumb, depending on how big you are, I would steer away from drinking more than like 200 to 250 milligrams of caffeine a day. I would say anything over that probably not going to be good for you. If it's under that, I mean, it's not going to kill you, but I just don't think it's a good thing. And uh, kind of a funny timing, Ben Greenfield just sent out this article to his mailing list. Um, talking about uh, caffeine, obviously, he just came out with a decaf coffee through his supplement company, Keon, which I'm sure is really good. But um, I wanted to get to some of the dark side of caffeine that he talks about. So he says, we all know that being um, over-caffeinated can cause jitter, jitter, sweat, anxiety, and irritability. Um, also, caffeine tolerance, again, it can build up to it. But uh, what are some of the downsides? So caffeine in your genes, they say in this article, how much caffeine you can handle partly depends on your genetics. So about half of the population has a variant in the CYP1A2 gene for slow coffee metabolism, meaning they're more sensitive to caffeine, slow caffeine metabolizers more likely to experience jitters, disrupted sleep, and other adverse side effects. However, while some slow metabolizers of caffeine um, 
experience adverse side effects others don't. Um, this suggests two things. One, that caffeine metabolism is more nuanced than a binary model of slow or fast. It's kind of more of a spectrum or continuum, and this means that you're not doomed if you're labeled slow in order you have the green light to guzzle coffee all the time if you're labeled fast, and other variables affect caffeine tolerance and metabolism, including sleep, stress, diet, activity level, level lifestyle, and even our gut microbiome, which again, you gotta be priming all of those. So um, regardless of genes, you are in control of the variables that determine whether or not uh, coffee is good for you. Um, and again, you really wanna make sure you're not really doing caffeine after lunchtime, um, it's good to do a caffeine reset where you take a week or maybe two weeks just to kind of reset your neurotransmitters. Um, but again, you can check out this article. Um, some common misconceptions about coffee, does coffee center growth? Um, it can inhibit calcium absorption, but there's no evidence that it actually stunts growth. Um, is it bad for your bones? So caffeine is rumored to interfere with calcium absorption, thus increasing the risk of osteoporosis. However, um, it does have an effect on calcium absorption. The net effect is minimal and can easily be offset by eating foods rich in calcium. Um, what about cholesterol? So there's evidence that unfiltered coffee can increase LDL cholesterol levels for those concerned about cholesterol. Unfiltered brewing methods like the French press, espresso, and mocha pot allow natural oils called diterpenes to pass through your coffee. These diterpenes are thought to raise cholesterol levels. Um, methods that use paper filters such as pour over or commercial drip machines catch these diterpenes and have a neutral effect on cholesterol. Um, does caffeine cause dehydration? In this one, they say no. Caffeine is mild diuretic and may cause you to urinate more often. So obviously conflicting thoughts on that. However, the amount of water you drink with your coffee is generally greater than loss from urination. So this one says it doesn't cause dehydration. But anyway, I think if you can rely on not having caffeine, you're going to be good. And then just use it as something that is an occasional booster. But um, that's just my opinion. I just think a lot more people are addicted to it than they even realize and probably is healthy. So uh, let's check out the last one. So just a little quick hitter. I wanted to talk about seasonal eating. So I found this uh, article on Ayurvedic medicine, which is kind of like healthy living and um, comes from, I believe, India, which is a lot of the natural homeopathic remedies and everything. But um, as the seasons change, as we are obviously heading into fall and winter, right now I wanted to talk about, so what is, is seasonal eating a thing? Like, is it better for us to eat different things throughout the throughout different seasons? Um, I found this article talking about Ayurveda. So it says the spring is a watery season of warming temperatures. Snow melts making the rivers full and muddy. Warm temperatures encourage uh, tender young sprouts and sweet sap to run in the vasculature of maple trees. Our internal landscape reflects mother nature. So spring is a time of cleansing and renewal. Um, fat melts away from tissues along with toxins and into the blood, making the blood sweet. Blood plasma and toxins are metaphorical maple syrup and muddy river releasing a flood of mucus and allergy season. So um, just as kind of like an overview, thinking about eating more carbohydrates in the spring and summer times when it's hotter outside and we are burning and expanding more calories. And then as we head into winter, maybe doing a little bit of a higher fat diet and lower, lower carbohydrate because it's going to be colder outside and more of a slow burn. So just something I was tossing around the idea of, I kind of want to do more research into it, but just think about that. And even if it's not necessarily doing a macronutrient rebalance or anything like that, try to eat more seasonal based on what type of food you would probably have been eating like your ancestors would have during colder times. So 
If you are from Northern European descent, your ancestors during the wintertime are probably eating things that were fatter because they couldn't farm and they were hunting animals and they were probably eating more animal protein and animal fat. So something I thought was pretty neat to consider, something in today's modern age we've kind of farmed out, so to speak, and we don't have that seasonal adjustment where in the summer we may have been eating berries and things that were higher in carbohydrates. So just a little uh, tidbit and something that you can dive into and research yourself. But that is it for today. I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in and listening to me today. Really appreciate it. That was episode 90. Folks, if you have any questions at all, definitely drop them in the comments and I will do them on the next episode that I get to Q&A. And if there's anything I can ever do to help, don't hesitate to reach out. Look forward to hearing your feedback and I will talk to you guys soon. Peace.